We're looking tonight at a passage that is not obscure to any of us. It's found in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Paul, of course, writing to the church in Philippi. Paul was writing from prison. And Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, Rejoice. To the church at Thessalonica, Paul would say, Rejoice evermore. If anyone on planet earth has a reason to rejoice, it's a Christian, isn't it? Aren't you glad to be a Christian? Aren't you grateful for all the blessings and favors that we enjoy? I think sometimes maybe as Christians we overlook how blessed we are. I think about Paul writing from a Roman prison cell. And yet the book of Philippians is bathed in joy, in a spirit of joyfulness. And Paul could encourage these saints to live in a state of joy. And he could encourage them to rejoice in the Lord and as he said, again, I will say, rejoice. And then you take that and compare it to what he said to the church at Thessalonica. Paul would say, again, rejoice evermore. We've got so many things to be grateful for. So many blessings. I want to begin tonight by calling attention to some of the great blessings that we have. And I want to call attention to our theme tonight. Rejoicing in the Christian life because we have so much to be joyful for. First and foremost, I want to say that we ought to rejoice in our abundant riches in the Lord. Did you know that if you're a child of God, you are rich? Now, you might not feel rich. You might not necessarily view yourself as rich. The Bible says if you're in Christ Jesus... You are rich. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would talk about the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness. So you're rich. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul would say that those of us who belong to the family of God enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so what he's saying is, if you're in Jesus Christ you have an abundance of spiritual treasures, spiritual riches. You are, as I said a minute ago, rich. And really, rich beyond compare. Let me give you a couple of reasons why we're so rich. Number one, because we've been redeemed by the Lord. We have been redeemed by the Lord. The price of our redemption was His blood. And you think about the innate worth that the Lord has placed on the human soul. And really what the Bible says to all of us is that we are unique in the eyes of God. We have been made in His image and likeness. And we have been redeemed by His blood. And the Bible talks about the power of the cleansing blood of Christ. The purity of that cleansing blood. The promises that are associated with that cleansing blood. In Ephesians 1, 7, Paul would say, in Him, that is, in Christ. And really, that phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, is found some 35 times in the book of Ephesians. And really what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus is, to be in Christ 
is to be in a very special place. It's to be rich. Because God has blessed you so richly. So we have been redeemed by His blood. And so in Ephesians 1, 7, Paul said, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And sometimes we ask the question, how powerful is the blood of Jesus? Well, it has the power to wash away all sin, doesn't it? Not just all sin, but any sin. You could begin to enumerate any and every sin known to man. And to think that the blood of Jesus has the ability, the power, to wash all of those sins away. I like the words of John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. When he said, unto him who loved us and washed us. Some translations say, he loosed us from our sins. Sin carries with it a lot of baggage. We think about the burdens and the guilt associated with sin. When we become a child of God, it is, it, it is as if the Lord cuts away that baggage, doesn't he? The baggage known as sin. And then think about this. All of those sins washed away. And what God says is, I will remember them no more. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. The writer there goes back to Jeremiah chapter 31, talks about the new covenant that God would establish and he said that covenant would be one of forgiveness. He said, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. He said, I will remember no more. Aren't you grateful that as a child of God, that there are some things that you don't have to think about and worry about from the vantage point of sin? The baggage, the guilt of sin has been done away. It's been eradicated. God has removed that from your presence and God will never again bring it up. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a blessing, isn't it? Tremendous blessing. And so you think about how rich we are in Christ. Not only have we, have we been redeemed by the Lord, but the Bible tells us we have been reconciled by the Lord. Did you know that we have been reconciled by the Lord to the Lord? Think about that for a minute. We have been reconciled by the Lord to the Lord. God was the architect of the redemptive plan, wasn't he? God had a plan in place before he ever created mankind and laid the foundations of the world. So when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, thereby bringing separation, alienation, God intervened. And in verse 15 began unveiling what we typically call the promised seed. The promised seed, of course, had, has reference to the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And bit by bit and piece by piece, God began unveiling His plan of redemption. That plan of redemption and reconciliation. That beautiful plan of reconciliation involved a person. That person was Jesus Christ. Jesus was the agent by which God's redemptive plan was accomplished, wasn't it? Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Paul said, all things are of God who has reconciled all things to himself by whom? By Jesus Christ. He is the person of reconciliation. And then you think about the place of reconciliation. 
Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 16 that Jesus Christ has reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. That means you and I have been, we've been redeemed. We have been reconciled by Christ. We've been reconciled by the Lord to the Lord. Think about what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You remember God said that he would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he said, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ functioned as a mediator between lost humanity and Almighty God. And what Jesus did was bring the two parties together, didn't he? He effectively brought lost humanity to God, the crown of his creation. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. And so today we've been redeemed, we've been reconciled, and we are a part of the church, the ecclesia, the community of the saved. And so we got so many blessings. And you think about the abundance of our riches in Christ. And Paul would say to the church at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord. Again, he said, rejoice. Well, why? Because of our abundant riches in the Lord. There's a second reason why we ought to rejoice, I believe. I think there was a second reason why Paul rejoiced. And you look at, look at the life of Paul and look at some of the difficulties and adversities and trials and tribulations and temptations in dangerous situations that he found himself in from time to time. And yet, amidst all of that, Paul could maintain a joyful disposition, couldn't he? Do you remember when he was in prison in Philippi? His feet had been fastened in stocks along with Silas's. And the Bible says at midnight, what were they doing? They were praying and singing praises to God. I would suggest to you that they sang praises to God out of a joyful heart. They could reflect upon all their blessings and favors. So when you, when you think about rejoicing in Christ, our joy is not necessarily dictated by external circumstances, by the happenstances of life, but rather there is this deep-seated joy peace and contentment that we have that the world unfortunately does not have. So let's think secondly about we ought to rejoice in our abiding relationship to the Lord. When you became a child of God, you entered into a very special relationship with the Lord. Do you remember when John wrote the book of 1 John? And he talked about the incarnate Christ, the fact that they had seen him, they had heard him, they had touched him. He said, our hands have handled him. He identified him as the word of life, that eternal word. And he said, we've written unto you that your joy may be full. Paul was writing to Christians, encouraging them to reflect upon the joy of their fellowship 
in Christ. And all of us tonight, as members of the body of Christ, we have a very unique and special relationship to the Lord. We are identified as heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. The Bible says we've been married to Christ in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. We are called a holy nation of people, a people for God's own possession. In other words, we belong to Him, don't we? So you think about all these great blessings and favors that we have in Christ. Well, what about this abiding relationship that we have in the Lord? I want to suggest two things here. First, I would encourage all of us to look to the Lord for guidance. To look to the Lord for guidance. Those of you that are about to begin the school year, think about your relationship to the Lord and how blessed you are. And here's what I think about. As a child of God, enjoying a, a unique relationship to the Lord, this abiding relationship, I can look to Him for guidance. And because the Lord is a part of my life, I am assured of two things. Number one, a blessed life, and number two, a better life. Would you agree? Don't you think that as a child of God, somebody who is basking in the guidance of the Lord, that we have a blessed life, that we have a better life? You and I, we're so blessed. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3 said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He said, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and what will He do? He will direct your steps. You and I, we have, we have an amazing book called the Bible. God's Word has the ability to guide us safely through the ups and downs, the joys and frustrations, the highs and lows of life. So when we talk about our relationship to the Lord and the fact that we have a blessed life, we have a better life, it's true. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my pathway. The psalmist meditated on God's word day and night. When I think about the direction, the guidance that we have from the Lord, I can't help but think about Jesus. Jesus, and we're going to talk about prayer in just a minute, but Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer, didn't he? Do you remember in the book of Mark in chapter 1, the Bible says on one occasion, he arose early in the morning, went out to a solitary place, and there prayed to God. In Luke chapter 5, we read of Jesus withdrawing into the wilderness to pray, and I think that was something that he did regularly. In chapter 6, the Bible says that Jesus spent the night in prayer to God before selecting the apostles. Do you think possibly he was looking to God, God the Father, for guidance, direction? You think about some of the decisions that you make about the course that you're plotting in life. Don't you think it would stand to reason that we would spend time in prayer to God before major decisions in life? As we deal with some of the various things that go on in life, shouldn't we, shouldn't we bathe our lives in prayer to God? Sure. So you think about this abiding relationship that we have in the Lord and the fact that we can look to the Lord for guidance and then secondly, for guardianship. 
we can look to the Lord for guardianship. We're talking about his abiding relationship with us. First, there's the promise of his presence. Aren't you grateful that the Lord has promised to be with you wherever you go in life? Do you remember the words of Hebrews chapter 13? You know, sometimes we cite certain verses over and over and over again. I think one of the reasons we do that is because repetition is a great way of learning. Another reason is because, from my vantage point, they're encouraging. It's encouraging for me to reflect upon verses that I need to have implemented and internalized in my life on a daily basis. So to reflect upon the abiding presence of God in my life. And the Hebrew writer said, speaking on behalf of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you remember when Joshua was instructed by God to lead his people into the promised land? God said in Joshua chapter 1, to this great man of God, Joshua was told by God, I will be with you wherever you go. Is that not the case with us today? Will God not abide with us wherever we go? And think about this. We talk about the circumstances and difficulties of life and traveling the road of life. Sometimes things are great. Some, sometimes it's as if we have, we have not a care in the world. There are other times when we feel as if we're living in a fog. Everything's turned upside down. We have difficulty making sense of what's going on. But to know that whether the road is good or bad, the Lord is with us. And then when we come to the end of the road of life, what then? What about the presence of the Lord? Do we have assurance that he will be with us? Do you remember David in Psalm 23? You remember David talked about the shepherd. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. He said, I shall not want the abiding provisions of God. But then he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he said, you are with me. David directing attention to the Lord, his shepherd. And saying, look, even if I were to cross over into that eternal realm, I have the assurance that you're going to be with me. So we have this abiding relationship with the Lord. We can look to God for guidance. We can look to Him for guardianship. We have the promise of His presence. But then we also have the privilege of prayer. How much do you value prayer? How important is it to you in life? You ever, heard, you ever heard somebody say, I'm just a phone call away? Anybody ever told you that? If you need me, just pick up the phone and call me. In a sense, God is just a prayer away, isn't he? Now his presence is with us 24-7. But we can commune with him. We can go before his throne 24-7. The privilege of prayer. Paul believed in prayer, didn't he? He spent an amazing amount of time in his life in prayer. 
And I would encourage all of us as we think about all the great blessings and favors that we have in Christ and the fact that we ought to live a joyful life to know that there is somebody who genuinely cares about us. You know, sometimes you can call another person and you can tell by the tone of, of their voice whether or not they're really interested, can't you? Whether they're locked in or not. Listen, when you go before the throne of God, it doesn't matter what time of day or night. God's not weary. He's not tired. He's not going to fall asleep on you. You can go before the throne of God and He will attentively listen to every single syllable that you have to utter. That's a blessing. Peter said the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. I can't help but think about God. And I can't help but think that God is always waiting to listen to us. Why? Because we belong to Him. We're His people. And we're family. And God, as our Father, He wants to hear from us. And the beauty is, He answers prayers, doesn't He? Many of us have seen the power of prayer in our lives. I love the words of James. He said, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He's just saying there's power in prayer. Is it a privilege? Yes, it is. But there's power. And so when we go before the throne of God, we are going before the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who has the ability to come to our aid, to our rescue. And I would add this one verse. I mentioned verses that mean a lot to me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter said, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Look. You can't live very long in this world without having some cares and anxieties and troubles and trials. And there are times in life when our hearts are heavily burdened and we're hurting. And yet because we have this abiding relationship with the Lord, we can go before His throne and we can invoke His blessings. That's a... That's a Tremendous blessing as a child of God. There's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. And that is we ought to rejoice because we have an amazing reward in the Lord. Now we talk about heaven. And as I have said before, we talk about heaven, we think about heaven, we read about heaven, we pray about heaven, we sing about heaven. But you know, one day heaven will be a reality, won't it? So you think about reasons why we ought to be joyful, why we ought to rejoice. To think that we have an amazing reward in the Lord. I think about that promised place 
There's a passage found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter talks about the hope that we have beyond this life, and our hope is based on the resurrected Christ. Because Jesus came forth from the grave, we have hope, don't we? And you remember in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is said to have the keys to the cemetery. So the Lord Jesus one day is going to unlock the cemetery doors, and the dead will come forth. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, what Peter is saying is that you and I as children of God, we have this amazing reward, and here's what he's saying to us. It is guaranteed. Many of us, when we buy a product or a service, we want a guarantee, don't we? I mean, don't we want some type of warranty? That if something goes wrong, if, if something's not what we think it ought to be, that, they're gonna, that the company, or the corporation will stand behind that product. So we want a guarantee. As a child of God, as a Christian, did you know that we have the guarantee of heaven? When Jesus talked about going away in John chapter 13, you and I know that Jesus was going to the cross. He would suffer, bleed, and die, later be placed in a tomb, a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Three days later, he would come forth from the grave for 40 days, he would, show himself, he would show himself alive by many unmistakable proofs, as Luke would say in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. So you and I, we have, we have this tremendous hope before us, the guarantee of our resurrection, the guarantee of heaven. So Jesus is talking about going away in John chapter 13. So when you make the transition to chapter 14, here's what he says. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. They believed in God the Father. Was Jesus God in the flesh? Yes, he was. Jesus was saying to his apostles on that, on that night, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a promise, isn't it? And who made that promise? The Lord Jesus did. And the Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. So what God has said is true. So can we say that there is a guarantee there? Yes, there is. So this promised place, this beautiful place, this promised inheritance. Let me talk for just a moment or two about the place of our inheritance. It is a place of absolute perfection. Have you ever been to a place that was just immaculate? Last year, I think it was last year when we had the opportunity to go to the Masters. For years I had watched the Masters on television. And I had heard people talk about the immaculate care 
of Augusta National. Let me tell you what, there wasn't a blade out of place. Everything was to perfection. Are there places in our world today that just radiate beauty? Yes. Many of us, we've stood at the peak of a mountain and looked down into the valley in awe of God's creation. And we look at all the, the majestic places that would fall under the heading of the handiwork of God. And to think about heaven. There is nothing in this world that can compare to heaven. In the book of Revelation, John uses accommodative language to try to help us get a better picture of heaven. But I'm not sure that I can fully grasp it. But I know this, when it comes to heaven, and we talk about this place of inheritance. The Bible says it is a beautiful place. And I would encourage you tonight, go home and read Revelation chapter 21. Read chapter 22. And think about the beauty of heaven. Heaven is a beautiful place. But it's not just a beautiful place, it's a better place. I like this world, don't you? I mean, I like life. Do you like life? Peter talks about those who would love life and see good days. I want to love life and I want to see good days. And I'm grateful for some of the great memories that I've made in my life. And I'm grateful for the blessings of this life. But I know that when it comes to heaven, heaven is a far, far, far better place than this world. There's no comparison. The world in which we live is marred by sickness, by sin, disease, illness, pain and suffering. And yet John said, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He said, there'll be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. He said, there shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. You tell me heaven's not a better place. It's a better place. It's a beautiful place. It's a better place. And it is a boundless place. Jesus said the righteous will go away, listen to him, into everlasting life. It'll never end, will it? Peter said we have an inheritance. It is incorruptible. It's undefiled. And then he said it fades not away. It's reserved in heaven for you. I'll tell you what, we've got so many reasons to rejoice. If as a child of God, we are not living in joy every day, something's not right. Something's amiss. Sometimes it's good for us to just sit back and reflect on our blessings. You know, there are some people that are optimists and then there are others who are pessimists. The optimist always sees the positive. The pessimist always sees the negative. Are there negatives in this life? Yes, there are. Are there things that are difficult to accept and deal with in life? Yes. But you know, as a child of God, 
We have so many blessings. To borrow the words of David, my cup runs over. We're blessed. So I want to encourage us tonight to live joyfully, to live joyfully every day, come what may. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ? Could I encourage you to become a child of God because it is it is the best, the best life. And it's the best life because it's a blessed life. And it's a blessed life because it's a better life. I know you want to become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, why not come to Christ tonight? What would you need to do? Well, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That He's who He claimed to be in Scripture. The great I Am. And then... Turn from the ways of the world. It's called repentance. Peter said on Pentecost Day to those people to repent. And then he said to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. In other words, so your sins can be forgiven. Once you do that, God then puts you in the church. It happens automatically. You become a part of the saved. And then the exhortation is be faithful until death, the promise being the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to his cause and maybe you've gone back into the world, you thought joy was there, you thought happiness was there, you thought contentment was there, but you found out, you know what, the world has nothing to offer. I'll give you that. You're right. It doesn't have anything to offer. Could we pray with you and for you? with the assurance that God will abundantly pardon. 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?